This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Just before we started recording, Kat was uh, talking about how displeased she is with her most recent haircut. I think it looks great. I really am glad that you like it. That's two haircuts in a row that you've not been happy with. She described it this way. It reminds me of the time I had the worst haircut ever. (laughs) It's not that it's not a good haircut. It's just not what I wanted. Is, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. What do you want? Well, I I want it different than this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Remember, remember a couple of years ago, uh, you decided you were going to dye your hair a different color uh, every month in honor of a particular organization like Cancer Awareness Month. You dyed your hair pink. And then you dyed it uh, blue for something. I actually didn't get to pink um, because we had to stop doing it (laughs) because my hair started falling out and breaking off like spaghetti. It was like dry spaghetti. It just snapped right off. Yeah. I run my fingers through her hair and it would just be like, crack, crack, crack. (laughs) Yeah. That was a good time. Thanks for bringing it up. You're welcome. (laughs) Do you ever think about uh, doing something like that again? And if so, how would you approach it differently? Yeah, um, if I was to do that again, which I I liked, I like the idea still. At January, it was uh, like blood donation awareness or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it was red, and uh, I like that idea, like each month changing it. But I would just do maybe a strip on the bottom uh, and then cut that part off and then color a strip on the bottom and then cut that part off. I see. And then, yeah. You know, because... You what, have to figure the ratios, though, because you might be bald in six months. Right, yeah. It would take some planning for sure. You're going to you're gonna start a spreadsheet, aren't you? <laughs> I just need to find those color-coded tabs for my folders. Tell me a tale. Weave me a wove. Weave me a wove? You weave me a wove. What? What? A guy named Johnny sent me this uh, topic idea. Thanks, Johnny. Wait, let me see how it goes, and then I'll thank you. <laughs> it's uh, it's dark history. It's grim. It's, you know, stuff from the past that's not fun. <laughs> but it's interesting. <laughs> All right. Remember that um, 
Jack and the Beanstalk, Children's Fable, the Children's Fable where the giant says, Fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I will grind his bones. Uh, I don't remember all of that. To I make do, my do. bread. I, mem- I remember that the, the story of Jack and yeah. the Beanstalk is yeah. a thing. I right. don't remember that rhyme. I don't remember that there was any bone grinding. He threatened to grind Jack's bones to make his bread. And, you know, as a kid, I thought that was weird. First of all, I always pictured the giant like the Jolly Green Giant. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't imagine him grinding anybody's bones. Right. Not in those tights. No. (laughs) The tale of bone bread is a real thing. And it comes from the siege of Paris in 1590. It is a haunting chapter in France's history of wars of religion. This grim history lesson shed some light on the extremes to which people can be driven by desperation during very difficult times. Mm. The siege of Paris happened in 1590, and it was uh, a major event in the ongoing conflict between Catholics and Protestants, which had been tearing France apart for decades. The city of France firmly under the Catholic League's control, was encircled by the forces of Henry of Navarre, who would later become known as Henry IV of France. Henry was a Protestant, and his campaign to take control of Paris was part of his broader quest to unite a deeply divided nation. This just makes me sad. I just wish that we as a people could grow past this whole, we're just going to war and stuff yeah there's too much warring going on so the siege drags on the citizens of paris are faced with desperate decisions to make there was a strategy that was put together by henry and his forces to starve the city into submission this meant cutting off supply lines and preventing food from reaching the inhabitants, just the citizens in general. With each day that passed by, the food shortage in Paris grew more severe and more desperate, and the suffering of the people reached an unbelievable level. It's against this historic backdrop of extreme hunger and desperation that the horrifying practice of grinding human bones into flour to make bread emerged. The citizens of Paris, confronted with starvation, really had very few choices. They had to resort to the dreadful act of using bones as a substitute for traditional grains. And since the holidays are upon us, I thought I'd share the recipe. Oh, jeez. Number one, collect bones. The primary ingredient, of course is bones, typically collected from various sources. Usually, they were human bones from the cemetery, but could include animal bones left over from meals, uh, carcasses, or any bone that was available. Sure. Number two, the preparation of the bones. The collected bones were cleaned and boiled to remove any meat or marrow. This process also softened the bones and made it, made them easier to grind. And that that boiled off marrow was then soupy, I imagine. I imagine so. So that's good. Next, you grind the bones into powder. After boiling the bones, they're dried and then ground into a fine powder. This is very labor intensive, so allow yourself plenty of prep time. How do you even come up with this? Number four, you mix it with other ingredients. The bone powder was mixed with uh, anything, really. 
that they could find. If they had a little bit of grain, they would use that. But usually it was like sawdust or tree bark or any kind of edible filler. Bone powder, in some incidents of extreme scarcity, was the only ingredient. Just bone powder and water. I can't imagine there's any nutritional goodness in that. Next, you form it into a baking loaf. Take the mixture and you make a little loaf out of it. And uh, it doesn't say in, uh, in my historical findings, but I would assume you would bake it for an hour at 400 on the lower rack of your preheated oven. Uh, the resulting bread will be harsh and coarse, devoid of any nutritional value, and with the taste of something akin to scrimshaw, I would think. What is scrimshaw? Number six, enjoy bon appetit. Bon, bon appetit. Bon appetit. He said bon appetit. Um, I have a couple of questions, yes, as yeah. you might imagine. Mm-hmm. One, what is scrimshaw? Why did you just laugh at me when instead of answering me? <laughs> scrimshaw is decorative carving on, uh, it could be ivory. It could be whalebone. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh-huh. And I thought that would be funny because scrimshaw is a funny word. So I, I said it would taste like scrimshaw. Okay. No, yeah. I I definitely follow your, your path uh-huh. now. Okay. And my second question is, oh, Lord, why? Yeah. We know a lot about this. Pierre de Lestolet, a notable official of the French parliament during the 16th century, played a crucial role in documenting the gruesome events that surrounded the use of bones from the Cemetery of the Innocents to make the infamous bone bread. Mm. It provides a chilling account of the circumstances and how dire things became with inside the city walls. As time wore on and the city supplies dwindled to alarming levels, a desperate assembly convened to consider the horrifying solution of utilizing human bones for sustenance. And as I mentioned, the Cemetery of the Innocents was one of Paris's largest cemeteries. And that was chosen as the um, grim source for these materials. The idea of grinding bones into flour to make bread was just an act of desperation. It was a last-ditch effort to try to stave off starvation. And this is a great example of why when there's plague or something like that, you bury them elsewhere you bury those victims elsewhere so that way later on when you have to raid cemeteries for bread Mm -hmm. bones um you're not having to sort through like okay how did this one die right and yeah even though they practiced that it didn't help those who consumed this bone bread did not meet their demise from starvation as they had feared but from the very means they believed would save them The The, bone bread was harmful to them? It killed people. It did? The tragic deaths that that occurred as a result of consuming this bone bread has given rise to a lot of different theories and speculation over the centuries as to why the bone bread killed them. One theory suggests that toxic substances like arsenic might have played a role in the deaths. During this period, arsenic was known to be used in some food preservation methods, and it could have contaminated the bones used in the bread-making process. To your point, they, I'm sure, tried to avoid any bones of people that they knew that died of some sort of disease. Yeah, the icky bones. But they didn't understand that the arsenic 
may have collected in like mercury might in fish same yeah okay and of course the ingestion of arsenic can lead to severe poisoning causing all kinds of symptoms from nausea to vomiting abdominal pain ultimately death if consumed in sufficient quantities another theory as to why the bone bread killed people is more of a of the psychological trauma that was caused by consuming knowingly consuming human remains it may have had a significant impact on the health of those who ate bone bread i've got questions now if we are unsure what killed these people how do we know that it was bone bread related and not just regular old starvation this is based on the historical account by that guy and the theories are modern day and looking back he documented that almost everybody that ate bone bread died the most plausible explanation for the deaths resulting from the consumption of bone bread uh, lies in the fact that uh, it was nutritionally inadequate human bones are rich in minerals like calcium but they lack nutrients and calories necessary uh, for sustenance so it may have been to your point just continuation of starvation but a lot of people developed severe digestive issues that caused their death in fact in some cases the bone bread would harden and cause intestinal blockages oh so that's not fun no and so if you're already weakened and malnourished any of these things could be catastrophic so basically the deaths resulting from the consumption of bone bread were likely a combination of all of the above or little bits of all of the above mm. fortunately they didn't have to do that forever and as time progressed societies evolved and human bones were utilized in various ways still not as food but in the early 19th century europe of course experienced a series of devastating wars including the, the napoleonic wars and that resulted in the loss of countless lives on the battlefield and in the aftermath of the conflict the bones of fallen soldiers and even horses from the famous battle of waterloo in 1815 they were collected and used as fertilizer oh again though if they don't have that much nutritional value how is that bones contain essential nutrients like calcium and phosphorus which benefit plant growth oh okay and the agricultural utilization of these bones uh, was a, a shift from desperate survival measures during a siege to a more practical and helpful approach to using available resources in that post-war period mm. then there was the bone bread in gloucestershire england in the six in the 1860s this provides a contrast to the grim history of the parisian bone bread uh, despite a similar name bone bread from gloucestershire has no connection to human remains it was named after the boneyard scavengers who frequented the banks of the river. These scavengers collected discarded bones, often animal bones, along the riverbanks. And they were not used for consumption, but agricultural purposes. Okay. Ground bone meal vastly improved the quality of the soil and increased crop yields. They were also used in other industries like production of bone china. I didn't know that bone china had real bones in it. What? It's a type of porcelain that incorporates finely ground bone ash into its composition to achieve that uniquely distinctive translucence and durability. Really? Yeah. So different kind of bone bread. 
Not as horrific as the bone bread from 1590 Paris. You don't know. And that was a reminder of the lengths humanity can go to when faced with survival and sometimes unintended tragic outcomes of such desperation. But it also serves as a reminder that that the human capacity for resilience, resourcefulness, and adaptability can be significant in times of dire need. So I'm going to leave it on that positive note. Okay. And during this season, ask yourself this as you sit around the table enjoying a holiday meal. Do I really know where this bread came from? I thought you were going to say something sweet, like be, you know, grateful that you have all these amazing, delicious foods available to you and that you don't have to grind up your dead relatives to make bread. (laughs) To to make your crescent rolls. Yeah. Yeah, No, you're right. I probably should have done that. My information came from Ancient Origins, Fantastic Facts, Wikipedia, and suggested by one of our very own freaks, Johnny. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's 
A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. Did you know, back in the early 20th century, Pennsylvania Germans considered it bad luck to take a bath or change your clothing between Christmas and New Year's Day. In addition, if you changed your underwear between the holidays, quote, you will be filled with boils. Happy holidays. Hey, Dan sent us an email. You're, you're going to like this one. Hey, Kat and Jethro. But really, this email is looking at you, Kat. Oh. I'm a farmer on a historic 1790s farm in Connecticut (gasps) on what is said to be one of the most haunted roads in Connecticut. Stop it. Downs Road. Apparently, we have our own Bigfoot, he says. Anyway, I'm actually writing to let you guys know that my pigs love your podcast. Oh. You see, I raise Cooney Cooney pigs. A rare variety from New Zealand. With the curly hair? Uh, The name actually means fat and round. Oh my God. They are the only variety of pig that is bred to graze versus root and till up the ground. That's so interesting. Cat, you would love my crew. He's got a pig crew, sweetie. And they will do anything for a belly rub and will roll over and grunt until you provide one. Oh, my God. As adorable and charming as they are, it's sometimes hard to motivate to get up and out to the barn to begin the day, especially as our weather starts to get more frigid. Oh, for sure. Boo has become an irreplaceable part of my morning feeding routine. I'm actually excited to get out the front door and into the barn. You never fail to entertain me and in turn... My pigs indirectly love you for getting food into their mouths at a reasonable time. Oh my gosh, it's going to become sort of like Pavlovian. They're going to hear a box of oddities and think that it's food time. Yep. <laughs> he sent a picture. Stop it. Give me a... Oh my God. Oh, they're so cute. Look at those eyebrows. They're so cute. Do other pigs have eyebrows? Or oh is... my God. Look at that! A pig with eyebrows. You have an email? Would you share one? No, I'm just looking at pigs. Look at this little snoot. Oh, he's got some food in his mouth, so he's like, her. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know if your dog eats half a box of milk chocolates, you can get it to throw up by giving it a tablespoon of hydrogen peroxide? Want to see photos of what happens? This is The Box of Oddities. The Met has on display, labeled 16th century British, a felt cap. The cap is brown and low on the top with long, goofy ear looking side pieces. (laughs) It kind of resembles a condensed fiber mullet. These felted knit caps are typical of 16th century headwear in England. Cap knitting was an important domestic industry, restricted to professional guilds and protected by law. There was a professional cap knitting guild? That is correct. Fascinating. One such law, the Statute of Apparel, passed in 1571, specifically stated that all English citizens above the age of six, except nobility, had on Sabbath and holy days to wear caps of wool manufactured in England. So it couldn't just be any woolen cap. It had to be one that was produced in England. Correct. That would lead me to believe that this was a money-making scheme of some sort that organized religion was conducting in conjunction with politicians of the time. What? Crazy. This was a sumptuary law, and we've talked about these laws before. According to Black's Law Dictionary, these laws are all about putting a lid on fancy living and excessive spending, especially when it comes to splurging on foods, clothes, furniture, and such. Back in the day, they were meant to keep social orders intact and uphold moral standards by controlling what people wore, ate, and how they spent their money, often based on social status. But sometimes, as you pointed out, sumptuary laws were put in place for more practical economic reasons. This law was put into place to stimulate the local wool economy. The law stated... Every person above the age of six years, excepting maids, ladies, gentlewomen, noble personages, and every lord, knight, and gentleman of 20 marks land, residing in the cities, towns, and villages, or hamlets of England, shall wear on Sundays and holy days, except while traveling, a cap of wool, (laughs) thick and dressed in England, made within this realm, and only dressed and finished by some of the trade of cappers. It then went on to detail a three-farthing fine per instance for rule breakers. Three farthings. Mm, That's correct. This law is credited for being the reason of the popularity of the flat cap in English culture. However, it wasn't until the 1950s that the upper classes started embracing the flat cap rather than just the working class, Mm. as they were no longer bound by the restrictions imposed by the 1571 Cappers Act, which was repealed in 1597. This was not the first time, though, that the region had passed hat laws. There was a a flurry of cap regulations. You know it. 
Though technically Wales didn't become part of the UK until the early 1700s, we're just going to move right along. The Monmouth cap originated in the town of Monmouth, Wales, just south of Archfield, which was known for its high quality wool. Mostly male hand knitters were responsible for crafting the caps to the extent that the surname Capper became common in the region. These caps were indispensable for sailors, soldiers, and laborers, and they were reportedly worn by a significant portion of the population in England and Wales. The distinctiveness of these traditional caps was so notable that the Cappers Act of 1488 prohibited individuals from wearing caps made outside the country. Well, they, they were serious about this. They were serious. Now, over time, the production of caps expanded beyond Monmouth, leading to the term Monmouth cap being used to describe hats of that same style made anywhere. Which reminds me a lot of the conversation we had yesterday about bourbon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can make whiskey like they do in Bourbon County mm-hmm. anywhere. But if it's not from Bourbon County, Kentucky, it's not bourbon. Which is so interesting. It's like champagne. Right. Yeah. yeah. Eventually, the unworkable Cappers Act of 1488 and the Cappers Act of 1571 were both repealed. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Both of these acts were legislation to boost the domestic wool industry, which had found itself in dire straits. Hmm. I want my MTV. Anyway, sumptuary laws generally were restricting of extravagance in food, drink, dress, and household equipment, usually on religious grounds, like sumptuary laws were enacted in the Massachusetts Bay Colony early in the settlement. In the fall of 1634, the general court ordered that no person, either man or woman, shall hereafter make or buy any appell, either woolen, silk, or linen, with any on it lace, silver, gold, (laughs) silk, or thread under the penalty of forfeiture of such clothes. They just take, literally take the clothes off your back. They just take them. Yeah. Like, you can't be wearing lace, mister. Give it. Wow. Give it. Or sumptuary laws were to reinforce social hierarchies, like when the Scottish sumptuary regulations were passed in 1429 related to textiles, limiting silk and some types of furs, like pine marten or beech marten, and other items to men of certain social ranks, like knight, lord, burgess, and their families. But in some cases, even though fairly unenforced and eventually bagged, it was an effort to boost the local economy through hats. That is so weird. <laughs> that is so weird. I think it's weird that when you like see an old movie from the 40s or the 50s. Everyone is wearing a friggin' hat. Yeah, and they had stores that were just hat stores. Haberdasheries. Though haberdasheries did, if I understand correctly, also sell other men's wares. Okay, not just not just hats. I think so. Right. I could be wrong. Otherwise, they would call it a haterdashery. No, no. <clears throat> I got my information from hatrealm.com, oh my. the Met, hiyahiyaeurope.com, and Fairbanks History. Reminds me of a, a topic that I was going to do um, involving Oliver Cromwell 
in how through his, you know, as a Puritan in 1644, um, was, was trying to purify the church of England from what he viewed as Catholic practices and excesses. Um, so he allegedly banned pies as (laughs) pagan forms of pleasure. Um, so there, and this this has been disputed, but which is why I didn't do the story. Sure, but uh, allegedly there was a ban on pies. See, that's why you know I don't claim any sort of spiritual grouping, but uh, if I was going to, I would be pagan because pie pleasure. Yeah. I'm about it. Yeah, I saw American Pie. Ew, not that kind of pie pleasure. Allegedly, pie making went underground. <laughs> it was like pie prohibition. What's the first rule about pie club? You don't talk about pie club. There are just a few days left for you to win a year's membership to the Inner Circle of Freaks. Get your friends in the box. Get your friends in the box. We'll put the link in the show description again. Uh, it's until Monday at midnight, and then we'll announce the winners' names. There will be three winners of a year's membership to the Inner Circle, and that means ad-free episodes. It means Zoom calls uh, every month. It means bonus episodes and lots of other stuff. You don't have to do the Zoom calls. Like we, I don't want you to think like this is a meeting that you're you're mandated to go to because no. I know that would make me not want a membership. Right. It is something that you can choose to do. <laughs> you can choose. If you so please. There are many who just uh, kind of lurk. Yeah. They're lurkers. Mm-hmm. They'll join us and their screen will be either black or just a photo and they don't say anything that you can't see them. They just want to be part of what's going on. And you can do that if you want to. You can lurk. Be a lurker. It's super easy to enter to win. Go to theboxofoddities.com or click the link in the show notes. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. 
You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.